I was trying to chew up a cough drop as quickly as I could because like many of you that I can hear this morning, I have a little bit of a cough. I figured if I cough during the sermon, it won't be the end of the world. That was supposed to be Friday. It turned out to be a cold front. So I think we're all right. I will not be incorporating any lyrics from R.E.M. or any lines from T.S. Eliot about the way the world ends as we know it. Little Christians, this morning as we continue in John 7, we're going to see a lot of little pieces in this story. We're going to see a lot of little things about Jesus and a lot of characters and a lot of different people speaking and saying things about Jesus and who he is and what he does. And I want you to think of it this way. John has put together for us a snapshot of who Jesus is and what he came to do in his incarnation and ministry. And so this morning, this is going to be a little tougher for you, but I want you to see if you can take all of the different pieces and put them together in that snapshot. In the course of the sermon, I'm going to tell you that really there are two sides to the snapshot. It works like a black and white photo. So what are the two different pieces that make up this picture This is the good news of Jesus as told to us and handed down to us by his apostle John. John chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? So why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for... All that you have become for us in the incarnation by coming to be man with us and for us. We praise you for all that you are from eternity. As the only begotten Son of the Father, fully God. We celebrate your incarnation. As you became not only fully God, but fully man. Thank you for living with us and for us. Thank you for remaking us. We ask that you would continue these graces to us this morning. As we hear your word, as we consider its weight and truth, give us right judgment. Let us see these things correctly. 
not just for the academic exercise of it, but seeing and being captivated by your beauty. Give us a fuller and better picture of your grace. Give us full rejoicing and rest in yourself. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes we get confused on the word judgment. There are several different ways it gets used in Scripture and several different ways that we use it in our language daily. This is not judgment in the sense of delivering the verdict and the sentence. This is not condemnation, judgment. This is discernment. This is judging and seeing things correctly. And so when Jesus says, use right judgment, it's actually a perfect exhortation to us before we start into a passage with so many seemingly mundane and moving parts. We get, as I told the young worshipers a minute ago, several snapshots of different pieces and different relationships that Jesus had with his brothers and with those who hated him and those he taught and those who argued about him. If we're going to see these things correctly, it's not enough for us just to see all of the parts. That's not the way that pictures work. We have to see the way that they fit together into the whole. We have to make sense of the relationship of all of the parts. So before we start making those connections, I want to tell you some of the snapshots you get to see. Smaller snapshots. Smaller scenes throughout the passage. Again, we get to see Jesus' refusal to display himself the way his brothers want. His brothers have told him to come out in the open, to make a show and a spectacle of himself. I've used this illustration before, but I still think it fits. For those of you who like the show Arrested Development, his brothers want him to walk around like Joe Bluth, the magician who walks around with doves in his jackets and can squirt fire from his sleeves and has a theme song, Europe's Final Countdown, everywhere he goes. This is what they want for Jesus. Show up and make an entrance. Make an impression and let these people know how glorious you are. And we saw last week that his brothers still don't believe in him fully but they want him to show up and display himself openly. And it's really frustrating and almost snarky that he waits until after they've gone up to the feast and he goes up not publicly but in private. He does the very opposite. Not only does he accompany them to the feast, he waits and goes quietly. But then we get a very different snapshot. Jesus wasn't hiding because he's afraid of crowds. Jesus doesn't have any anxiety about public speaking. That's not why he does these things in private. He is patient, and he is submissive to the Father. But when he gets to the feast, we get to see where and how Jesus does show himself. Not like some traveling magician. But we get to see Jesus showing himself to be the real exegete, the real interpreter of God himself. Just like John told us he was going to be at the very beginning of the gospel in 1.18. That he has seen God, he has come from God, and now he explains God. And he makes plain who God is and what God intends for us. That is where and how Jesus will show himself in the temple. And in that we get to see his submission to God's will 
in his patience before he teaches and also inside his teaching in this passage. He submits himself to the Father and he says that his teaching and his message are submissive to the Father as well. And in his submission to the Father, he exercises authority over all of the others around him. So we get another snapshot, snapshot, not just submission, but authority in his teaching so that the people are perplexed. How can he possibly know all of these things? And how can he say these things with such confidence? It's almost like this is his book. And in the course of his teaching, he pulls out for them again the discussion And he shows us more of his ministry as the one who is the very substance of the Sabbath. The one who comes to be our rest. To bring us his rest. And so he circles back for the story that we had in John 5. Where he healed on the Sabbath. Not to break the Sabbath. Not as a loophole that gets around some of the Sabbath constrictions but actually fulfilling the Sabbath, bringing rest and wholeness and shalom, as Jason said a moment ago, to a man who had none of those things. These are all the different snapshots that get lumped in for us in a very short course of verses. And all of these things fit together not as separate snapshots. These are not separate photos in an album. They fit together into one portrait, one artistic picture. And if it helps, you can think of it this way. Think of the way that Ansel Adams used to use black and white photography, not to hide detail, but to show it. The way he used black and white instead of color to really highlight contrast and definition and lay things next to each other in brilliant distinction with really two sets of tone. Black and a handful of shades of gray and brilliant white, side by side, but actually highlighting all of the detail. And that's what John does for us here. Instead of giving us a collection of snapshots, Instead of telling us that all of these things are to be taken collectively, kind of on their own, eclectically, I should say, he puts them together for us to look at them collectively. And so this artistic portrait of Jesus is very helpful because John has not taken a lot of shots around the room from different angles. And John has not taken a lot of pictures that are unrelated of different characters. Instead, he has taken one shot for us And he has picked a single angle. He has chosen the composition. And he's put everything together to show us the coherent relationship of all of these pieces. So if we were to think about two tones in this picture, kind of like the way Ansel Adams used black and white photography, here would be the two headings I see in this passage. In the story leading into this passage, and then again in this passage, we get to see Jesus living under the curse. We might talk about that, and we do talk about that at times, is what it looked like for Jesus to live with temptation. And then the other side, the other tone in the picture is what it looks like for Jesus to be in among us, lifting us up out of the curse. 
we talk about the way that Jesus is actively at work in his redemption. So we get to see Jesus living with his temptation, never yielding to it, always diligent and faithful to be working out his redemption for us, living under the curse in order to lift us out of it. Two of my favorite commentators on John's gospel point out very helpfully the way Jesus' temptation comes out in chapter 6 and chapter 7. It's actually beautifully done. The temptations we're most familiar with come from Satan in the wilderness, and we think of that way too often as the only time Jesus faced temptation. We think of it like Jesus started his ministry. He was baptized and then led out into the wilderness, and he faced three temptations in a 40-day span, and then temptation was over. That was really the showdown. That was it. And it was smooth sailing, maybe uncomfortable at times, but we don't think about those things as temptation. And these two commentators were very helpful to point out he faces the same temptations all the way through his ministry, very consistently. In 615, the people wanted to make him king, just like Satan promised him the kingdoms of the earth. In 631, the people asked him to make bread, to feed them, just like Satan asked Jesus in the wilderness to make bread for himself so he wouldn't go hungry. And in 7.3, the story with his brothers leading into this, we get his own brothers appealing to him and chastising him and pleading with him to make himself known and reveal his glory instead of living in this really absurd humility. Just like Satan tempted Jesus when he said he should throw himself down and prove his sonship. Prove his worth and glory by letting the Father show up and care for him the way a father ought to care for a divine son. And while his brothers don't believe all of that about him now, they are frustrated with him, no end, because they want him to make himself known like that. Jesus faced all of these temptations consistently through his ministry. Use your power and your glory and your position to exert yourself as king. Use your power and your glory to provide for yourself and those around you. Overcome the curse all at once now, we might say. Consistently, Jesus is tempted and asked and begged to show himself and make his glory known all at once. And the beauty of those temptations is that none of those things would be wrong for Jesus. All of those things properly belong to him. To be the king over all the nations of the earth. To use his power to undo the curse and its effects. And to make himself known in the brilliance of his glory. All of those things really do belong to him. The temptation for him is to do them now instead of when the world really does end as we know it. When Jesus comes back, not to end the world entirely, but to end the cursed world as we know it and show his redemption in full, to actually exert himself as glorious king, 
shown in all of his brilliance and putting away the curse by all of his power. That does belong to him and that is proper for him, but that comes at the end. Many of the problems and discomforts and frustrations that Jesus encounters throughout his ministry, as I said last week, many of those things come to Jesus in his ministry just because they're not supposed to happen yet. Just like our frustrations with Jesus are often that all of these things are not his work in full yet. And so Jesus patiently and humbly and submissively lives under the curse in this passage and in his earthly ministry. And currently, Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father, but he continues to minister to us who live under the curse. And he doesn't say no to any of these things. He just patiently and submissively says, not yet. That's what it looks like for Jesus to enter our curse and to live under it. And that is one piece of the picture that John has artfully captured for us. The other piece, sitting side by side, side by side in brilliant distinction with Jesus under the curse, is the glimpse of what it looks like for Jesus to start lifting us out of the curse. What does his redemption look like? It's a brilliant detail in this passage. Jesus was going up to the Feast of Booths. I know that means nothing to most of you. It's the Feast of Tents. I said it last week. It's kind of like the whole nation goes camping. You could set up a tent on top of your house or out in the street or if you had time out in a field and you would celebrate together the Lord's provision for the people of Israel after they left Egypt but before they entered the promised land. You would actually celebrate that your wandering was over and God's goodness in the midst of your wandering by reenacting it. But there was a festival to it. Many people say that this was actually their biggest national celebration. It wasn't their most important, but this is the one they celebrated the most. So very appropriately for us, this was like their cultural Christmas. This is the one that all the retailers got behind. This is the one that you spent money on and you took time off from work to celebrate. This is the one where you traveled to be with friends and family and set up your tents together just because culturally this is what they enjoyed celebrating most. This one was livelier than Passover. It was not more important. It was not more intense in their redemptive history. But the festival the festival was more exciting. And so Jesus says that he won't participate the way they want him to. You should hear echoes of that in Jesus' refusal to participate in everything of Christmas the way we want him to, but not a refusal to show up and celebrate Christmas and his incarnation with us. And ironically, the fact that he's going to this festival, the feast of tents. You should hear echoes from what John said his ministry in the Incarnation was. This is a festival where you set up a temporary dwelling. 
And the word used to describe the festival of tents is very close to the same word that John uses to talk about his coming and dwelling among us. His coming and setting up his tent, literally, to live with us for a time. And so we get this beautiful picture of a national festival where they celebrate the Lord's care for them and provision for them, and Jesus is among them as their living care and provision, setting up his tent and living with them in the incarnation. He is the fulfillment of the festival of booths. People are disappointed in the way he chooses to celebrate. And so then while he's there in the festival, he starts to instruct them on what this is supposed to look like. Jesus, the one who comes to live with them, to set up his tent and live among them, has a very particular method of ministry. He doesn't obey all of their cultural versions of the Sabbath. He doesn't acquiesce to all of their misuse and misunderstanding of what the Sabbath is. Instead, he continues to poke them with the fact that he is, and he is bringing them the rest the Sabbath is supposed to point to. He chides them in the temple. He comes and shows up and finally teaches like they've wanted. And they're amazed at the knowledge that he has, but the things that he says are uncomfortable. He chastises them for not understanding the Sabbath because he says, standing in their midst, basically... I'm your Sabbath. I am the rest you've always wanted. You have laws that prevent you from enjoying shalom and peace and rest on a day dedicated to show you what peace and rest are. I show up and I extend peace and rest to those who don't have it. You want to kill me for it. So Jesus lives among them And he teaches among them that he is the one bringing rest to be the substance of the Sabbath they've always wanted and needed. And in the midst of his teaching, they can't imagine how or why he has this kind of understanding. And he tells them what John told us at the very beginning of the gospel, that he is the one who explains God perfectly. He doesn't need the help of any rabbi. He doesn't need to go to school. He knows God Because in the beginning he was God and was with God. And he as God and man comes to explain what glory and peace and rest and comfort and redemption are. Because he is the glorious one. He is our peace. He is our rest. He is our redemption. And the picture he chooses to cite is a day that he took a broken man and made him whole. I said this when we first started preaching through John's gospel. John's picture of Jesus is a right one, by the way. But John's picture of Jesus for us really emphasizes Jesus' ministry in the incarnation that remakes us. There is a whole host of things that Jesus does for us. And John emphasizes ad nauseum through his gospel that Jesus is the one who comes to become man with us, but to make us men and women, to make us fully human like himself. 
And so the picture he gives them of his ministry, the thing that he picks a fight with in this story, is a story of him rehumanizing a broken individual. He stands in their midst. God and man who has come down to live with them, to set up his tent and live among them. In the middle of their festival of tents, and he explains to them who God is and what God intends. And he shows them how he is and how he is bringing them the rest that they need. And he circles back to make sure they don't miss the fact that he has come to be man so that he can remake us as fully human. To take broken people and make us whole in himself. And that means that he needs the first part. He needs the living under the curse. He needs living closely with our temptations. Not just to watch us live with them, but to live through them himself and never be broken under temptation. But then he also needs to be the one who is broken under judgment. He is broken under our condemnation, under the Father's wrath, to make us whole. And so this picture that John puts together for us in brilliant relief and detail, shadowed and highlighted with Jesus living under the curse and Jesus lifting us out of the curse, that is the picture of Christmas. That is the picture of the incarnation and what Jesus came to be and to do for us. He came under the curse to live with us and to live the life that we couldn't for us And he came to remake us in order to lift us up out of the curse so that we could celebrate a festival of tents living with him in the end. That is his ministry to us as the word made flesh. That is his ministry to us in the incarnation. Merry Christmas. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of Jesus. We thank you for sending him, your eternal Son made flesh, to be Emmanuel, to be God with us, to explain and reveal who you are and what you intend for us, but not just to teach. You sent him to be what we could not, you sent him to suffer our curse. And you sent him to remake us, to be conformed to his image, to be rehumanized. And Father, the truth of the incarnation, the real truth of Christmas is too wonderful for us. Our celebrations are too small. And the beauty of the incarnation is that Jesus came to celebrate over us and to celebrate with us, to take our broken and incomplete festivals and make them whole and complete in himself. So give us full rejoicing and celebration in him. Let us feel the weight of our need and let us see the substance of his provision in the incarnation. Do these things for us as we celebrate with family and friends this afternoon, tomorrow on Christmas Eve, 
on Christmas Day in the flurry of presents and feasting. Do these things for us as you bring us to your table to feast now. As we come together as your church, hosted by Jesus himself, preaching the gospel to each other as we break bread to preach the good news that Jesus, the perfect one, was broken to make us whole. Do these things for us. We ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy and your hosting. We ask for your holy celebration. We ask all of them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.